Welcome back to Omni Shambles. As I say every week, we are the fastest growing, most dynamic podcast in all of Washington, D.C. and really Western Hemisphere. The Western Hemisphere, yes. Thank you to our great listeners. We have what I would consider sort of a step back in terms of our booking this week. Um, <laughs> not my finest work, but we were really desperate. Desperate times because of desperate measures, man. <laughs> Adam Gentleson. Adam most recently was the comms director for Harry Reid. Is that the right title? I, I was the deputy chief of staff. Yeah, but left, oh yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm already underselling me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you do now, Adam? Troll. I'm sort of curious. I, you're sort of like omnipresent in Democratic now. I, I run uh, public affairs for a nonprofit legal advocacy organization called Democracy Forward, where we use the law to hold the executive branch accountable in many different ways. Pretty boring times for you. <laughs> yeah, we have no shortage of of work to do. We are operating in what I think is could be accurately described as a target-rich environment, but, <laughs> you know, I continue to keep my eye on politics. and Right. And we're bringing you on, actually, not to talk about Trump, but to talk about the Democratic Party, which is going through sort of a, I would say, an evolution, a change, an interesting moment right now. Roughly 46 people have announced that they're running for president. Do you think the field's getting a little too crowded, or is this... Are you one of these people who's going to give me the sort of, like, I like all the dynamics. I do. Oh. No, I do. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> next question. Yeah, next question. No, I mean, look, I think it's, you know, it reminds me of 2008 when we had a big field right. and it produced a very good result for us. So yeah. I think a dynamic primary is a good thing. I think we have a lot of things to work out as a party in a good way, a lot of debates to have about policy and all sorts of things. And I think that big field helps facilitate that. So, yeah, the thing about that is interesting well, or depressing a little bit is you talk about debates about policy and such. Right now, we're not really debating policy. Maybe that's just part of what comes when you have early stages. But it seems like the debate has quickly descended into sort of triviality and a lot of show stuff. So, for instance, you know, whether someone's a good boss or the claims of their heritage and things like that. Are you worried about media coverage so far? I think that there's a lot of indications that, you know, the media has not learned or made any effort to sort of be self-critical about the choices they made in 2016. So yeah, I mean, things like Senator Gillibrand, how she eats her chicken, Senator Warren's heritage. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just silly. But I do think that there's sort of parallel tracks here. Right. I mean, those stories, when they hit, they drive a ton of clicks, they get a ton of coverage, and we're talking about them for days and days. But beneath that, I think there's actually an extremely intense policy debate going on. On what? On things like the wealth tax. You have Democrats coming out loudly and proudly saying, for the first time in my this, these aren't debates. Basically, I feel like every candidate who is potentially running is going in the same direction. I don't really see much distinctions you at all. You have not had Democrats just come out straight up and say, we should tax rich people a lot in my memory. I mean, you know, Sam, you were on the Hill at the time. Like in 2011, the way we sort of got our mojo back after the shellacking of the midterms in working closely with the Obama administration, I was working with Senator Reid at the time, we rolled out this thing called the Jobs Act that was basically a giant proposal to spend massive sums of government money to create jobs, and we paid for it by taxing rich people. And, right. you know, looking back, like the increases we proposed were like comically small. They were like raising the top rate by like 1%. Right. You know, then we broke it up and we moved the individual pieces and we would pay for things by like increasing the top rate by like a quarter of a percent, you know. Yeah. But that was incredibly popular and it got us our mojo back. But looking back on it, you know, we could have gone a lot further. The polling told us it was good at the time, but it also suggested that there was a lot more room to run getting more revenue to do more stuff yeah, by think, taxing I, people I even more. Do you think part of what's happening here is these members put out these ideas that are fairly far-reaching and audacious with the idea basically being that they know they're never going to get that. 
Like they're sure. not going to get a 70% tax rate on tar- marginal income, but they can move the debate window so that when you settle for a 50% tax rate, it seems like that's a compromise. Do you say debate window in public and Overton window in private? Well, I was told editorially to never use the <laughs> phrase Overton window, but we can use it on the podcast, I suppose. That feels like that's what's happening. I, I think that's right. But I mean, there's a fundamental difference in degree in what we're talking about here. And part of what's been frustrating as someone working in democratic politics has been that you're always constricted in the scope of what we can propose by the realities of revenue. And the working assumption for my entire career up to this point has been that you generate revenue through a mix of spending cuts and maybe very moderate tax increases on the rich, like what we were talking about before, like yeah. a 1% raise, taking the top rate from like 39 to 4. And that strongly constricts the amount of revenue you have to work with. So there's a massive difference between that and what people are proposing now. And what that means to me is that the scope of possibility is much wider than it's ever been in a significant way. People are just gonna have a lot more revenue to work with to propose exciting things that help people in a big way and reshape. Now, I appreciate this conversation and I think it's valid. Like this is how they wanna re-engineer the domestic policy debate and the only way to do it is to find a revenue source. And there's a lot of conversation to be had about what that means and how to do it. And one of the people who's chiefly trying to make this conversation is Elizabeth Warren. This is a plank of a platform. And yet when we have a talk about Elizabeth Warren, inevitably what we end up is with a talk like this. The president tweeted last night, he wrote, quote, Today Elizabeth Warren, sometimes referred to by me as Pocahontas, joined the race for president. Will she run as our first Native American presidential candidate or has she decided that after 32 years this is not playing so well anymore? See you on the campaign trail, Liz, that word trail in all caps, an apparent reference uh, to the tragedy, the Trail of Tears. Just a few weeks ago, the president also made a reference to uh, wounded knee in a joking manner uh, when talking about Elizabeth Warren. You represent thousands of Native Americans in Wyoming. Do you have concerns about the president joking about these horrific tragedies? You know, I have concerns about somebody like Elizabeth Warren Warren pretending to be a Native American. Okay, so okay. let me let me explain this first before I go to Swin. That's Liz Cheney. She is obviously Dick Cheney's daughter, and she represents Wyoming. They're a lone congresswoman. And two things are remarkable to me about that. One is that, like, literally the deflection that the president made a genocide joke into being like, well, you know, actually, well, Elizabeth Warren's the problem. But two is that the debate is so pulled to one direction by a singular Trump tweet, which is what Adam was talking about. And I, I guess, Swin... It seems pretty obvious to me that Trump likes that. I mean, this is a strategic decision. Well, let's get one thing out of the way. First of all, Liz Cheney does not give a shit about what (laughs) Elizabeth Warren wrote on her heritage or ethnicity. She just doesn't. I I mean, this is incredible. She's not deeply offended by No, this is an incredible display of like taking the Trump ball and just running with it. And the reason this Trump ball keeps getting kicked in over and over and over again into the media sphere and also the political sphere is because, as we've reported at the Daily Beast before, Trump has repeatedly told people, both aides and others close to him, how much he would like to run against someone like Elizabeth Warren. Now, you could easily argue that she would be a far more formidable general election contender than a lot of Republican operators are giving her credit for. I'm not arguing that. What so I he wants saying, to run against her by attacking her and elevating her? Yes. Trump sees her individually whether correctly or incorrectly, as a very good foil for him and someone who he can basically bully throughout the entirety of the election and the primary Based news cycle. Based solely on this 
semi-false claims of Native American heritage. In large part, in calling her a socialist or an out-of-touch. Yeah, call ma- well, yeah whatever, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So it is true that this stuff keeps getting absorbed in the news cycle in large part because Trump wants it to because he likes having so much fun with it. And yes, it's petty. And yes, it's very Trumpian. But that's what the current state of our media-driven politics at the moment. There's no doubt that it dominates every time it hits. Right. I think the question is... Do you think it's a legitimate issue? I think that people are trying to make it seem like it's reflective of a larger problem with her personality. I think that's the debate that people The problem being that she appropriated some other identity to advance her own career. Yes, but I also think there is... Is there an indication anywhere else that this, like, helped propel her? I mean... No, I mean, the Boston Globe... The story last week was a little perplexing because... Yes, there was a new document, but the new document told us something we already knew, which was that during this time period, she identified as Native American. It did not in any way show that it was used to advance her career. Right. And the Boston Globe did an exhaustive investigation into her where she, they looked at her employment records and found that it was never actually used to advance her career. But this is where I think there is potential danger for Republicans. Two things. One, I think our base and people in general are fed up about over the noise over substance. I think that a lot of the traffic you see when these stories hit comes from Drudge, Gateway Pundit, places like that. And so it's like a lot of people talking to themselves and agreeing that this is a huge issue, whereas the rest of the population is like, this is bullshit and we should move on. And Obama, to be fair, in 2007, 2008, had to deal with a lot of this stuff, a lot of very similar analogous stuff about his heritage or who his parents or grandparents were or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Are you a birther? No, shut up. <laughs> yeah, just asking questions. Uh, but anyway, my point is like, yes, there is a lot of noise that can risk drowning out significant and substantive policy debates. But it's not like Obama wasn't elected twice. Right. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. It, well, that guess it, it doesn't a... have to kill. So, but the like, question is, it's, like, it's, like, it's, like it's like in 2004, with Democrats, we all were like, you know, Bush knew about 9-11. Like, we all agreed amongst ourselves that there were these, like, deep conspiracy theories yeah. that everybody agreed with that the rest of the population was like, you know, you got all crazy. And so I think that there is an element here of, like, people talking to themselves. Wait, did you just say you believe Bush? No, I did not okay. say I just that. want to I clarify that. that. <laughs> I'm sitting with a 9-11 truther and a birth on this podcast. No, Jesus. My, point, my point is about <laughs> self-reinforcing echo chambers where oh. like, you know. Is it smart for like Elizabeth Warren to ignore this stuff from Trump? That's basically been her posture right now. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to answer this stuff, this bullshit with more bullshit. I will just do my thing. And I have a question of whether that's smart. I think that you have to find a sort of middle ground where you don't get dragged into the day-to-day responding to every little tweet, but you do have to respond to sort of the fundamental gist of the attack. Right. And I think that is the challenge from a strategic perspective is how do you not let him dominate every news cycle and throw you off your game and drive your message while also, you know, Trump's not an idiot. He makes yeah. these attacks because there are Well, she thought that her team thought that when they did this exhaustive video where they went back and did DNA tests and they talked to the family about mm-hmm. how they had shared this cultural history, that that would put the issue to bed. And in fact, <laughs> it made it like, it magnified it. It made it worse. Yeah. And I think they learned a lesson, maybe even overlearned it too, which is that they just don't want to have to, maybe if they ignore it, it'll go away. But clearly it's not going away. I mean, the guy's making jokes about the Trail of Tears and Liz Cheney is ignoring those jokes. What's also interesting is that it's not going away. And yet you look at her numbers and I'm not a expert on polls or whatever, but like I've got two eyes in my head and I can see that her numbers are pretty solid and they're hanging tough. 
And I think that suggests that there is a gap between the sort of public chatter over these issues and what Democratic primary voters care about. Yeah, well, that's true. And then, you know, look, we're sitting here in February 2019, and we've got almost an entire year before the first caucuses happen. And that year will no doubt have we many twists and turns. There's so many senators running and we'll go through the other ones. Mm-hmm. But like, what was her reputation on the Hill as a senator? She had a very good reputation. She was someone who worked very hard on her issues, had very clear views on her issues and wasn't afraid to push hard, but had a very good reputation as someone who was good to work with as a colleague yeah. who tried to use her platform to help lift up other Democrats, who was always out there on the campaign trail helping people with her list and her platform. So she was very well liked, is um, very well liked. Yeah. One thing I noticed about her is that p- people pigeonholed her a little too much. I felt like she had really innovative and interesting ways of introducing legislation or crafting it, I should say. And my favorite example is she had this bill in which she wanted to fund the NIH because the NIH was getting killed by sequestration budget cuts. Her way to do it was not taxing the rich or anything like that. She decided that if a major pharmaceutical company had to go to court and pay a fine for misrepresenting a product or some delinquency here or there, that every time they had to pay a fine in that kind of context, they would also have to contribute to a fund that would end up going to NIH research. It was a very interesting way and kind of got away from the frame of her as this sort of soak it to the rich type person. You know, what's interesting about her is that she was someone who was deeply engaged in policy purely, you know, before they came to Congress. And people come from a lot of different backgrounds. Often they're some sort of legislator in some respect or another. Yeah. Um, or they're but not law enforcement. Right. She's but, an academic. Right. Where yeah. you're working on policy, but is not the sole focus. But she, you know, spent the previous decades of her career focusing very squarely on policy. So she has some innovative yeah. ideas. All right. She's not the only senator running this weekend. Amy Klobuchar announced that she, too, was going to be running for president. I stand before you as the granddaughter of an iron ore miner, as the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man, as the first woman elected to the United States Senate from the state of Minnesota to announce my candidacy for president of the United States. Now, that was that was announced in what looked like a hellish tundra-like conditions in Minneapolis. I thought to myself, it would be really brutal and comical if she brought everyone out there to stand there and be like, I am not going to run. <laughs> but here's some hot chocolate. So Amy Klobuchar gets in. Two things that people know about her. One, she's kicked ass in basically every election she does. And we're talking about 25%. Wins and and that's in a time where Trump's kind of made inroads in states like Minnesota. And two, which has come out this week, is that she apparently has some issues as a boss. Is this a fair issue? I'm a great boss, so I can ask you, Swin. No, we going to Adam. Yeah. You don't want to talk <laughs> about me as a boss. Yeah, I have to think about that for a second. Before we go to Adam, no. you wouldn't vote for no. me for president. No, no. Okay, I mean, who would? I'm my wife. You some assumptions. I'll, I'll start um, the process. I think it's a fair issue. I just think that the way you treat people says a lot about who you are as a person. It may say good things. I don't think it's determinative, but you know, if you're not nice to people underneath you, I think that is an important character qualification that people and voters need to take in. No, I agree with you. It's not nearly as important as so many other things that should get written and reported out and will get written and reported out by Amy Klobuchar as a presidential candidate. But for people to argue that this isn't fair game or something worth examining in the Trump era, where one of President Trump's big problems is that it seems like oftentimes it seems like nobody wants to fucking work with the guy. (laughs) Um, And that has led to a bunch of different political and policy hiccups and tumult 
it is weird to me for Democrats to argue or liberal activists who support someone like Amy Klobuchar, oh, why are you making this attack on her as a boss? It's like, we make it every fucking day about Donald Trump. That's <laughs> true. It's, it's an important issue. No, that's that, true. No Amy Klobuchar staffer has like secretly recorded conversations that we know of to like underscore the chaos and the right. tumult, as you said. But I mean, what do you think? This, I is, mean, look, this is a tough one, obviously. You can't talk about this issue without addressing the double standard that gets applied to women as bosses. I mean, that is a very real thing. And characteristics that would be seen as even positives in men are often ascribed negatively to women. Yeah. I mean, this also gets back to the Warren discussion we were having before. Right. Look, there's a lot of different levels. I mean, there's being a bad boss, then there's being abusive. And I think that part of being a leader and being a legislator is also creating an environment where people will present conflicting ideas, where they will feel free to speak their mind. Usually the fundamental job is navigating conflicting, extremely difficult well, ideas. Let, let me ask you. So you know, look, I, I just want to say that I, it's not clear to me that she is those things. Sure. But one thing that is true is you know, campaigns are tough, campaigns are long. And I think that if it's true, it'll come out. And if it's not, it won't. Already, it's been reported that three people declined to be her campaign manager. That's the Huffington Post reported this precisely because they were worried about the type of work atmosphere that would be there. So I think this is a problem already, but I'm going to push you a little bit here. First of all, you worked on the Senate. She was there. What was the reputation? I think the reputation is that she was a demanding boss. I mean, she said that, but there are a lot of demanding bosses on the Hill. And I think part of the reason people go to work there is they know that it's going to be a tough work environment. What does the senator manage in terms of like a staff and an operation? I don't think people quite understand the extent to which the senator is he or herself involved in the operational day to day. Every office is different, but that's sort of the point is that every office is sort of like uniquely tailored to the strengths, weaknesses, whims of the individual senator. Each office is essentially an isolated fiefdom. You know, as so some seen, offices, the senator will be a huge, like almost the chief of staff figure, and right. others they'll be yes, yeah, so the super day to day manager in one office, and the office next door could be someone who's completely aloof. The chief of staff runs everything. You know, delegates all major decisions. It really depends, but it can run the gamut. And one of the things about the Hill, I mean, we saw this in some of the stories about how bad the sexual harassment issues are up there. Right. There is very little HR policy that is consistent across offices. Each office is given an enormous amount of leeway on how it conducts even really basic HR policies. So you could have very different situations office to office. So if someone is an absolute micromanager as a senator, their office will be run like that. If someone is a sort of step back delegator, their office will be run like that. What was Reed like? He had a huge opportunity. That's the thing. As is a he, majority leader. As a majority was, leader, you run a kingdom, essentially, yeah. because you have your personal office, then you have your leadership office, then you have all of the you know, associated war rooms and policy committees. So it's sprawling. So you have to be a delegator. And that's the way he was. He trusted people with decisions. But he was someone who would extremely good at facilitating an environment where people would give opposing views, who would challenge his assumptions. He encouraged that. He asked for it. Also, extremely family friendly. This is something people don't know about him, but he was extremely good for people who had families, extremely accommodating for people with kids. Leave policy and stuff like that? Great leave policy. All right, Swin, on a scale of one to 10, one being just fantastic and 10 being completely, utterly, outwardly fantastic, how would you rate me as a boss? Four. Four. I'll give you a four. That's like a I D, was definitely right? expecting something above a six, to be honest. Took it. You get a four. Is this because we just 
past bonus season, and it's, now you feel like you can earn back. No, it's because you threw that binder at my head when I wouldn't get you but like I didn't the proper your polling head. data. <laughs> I didn't on, hit your uh, head. <laughs> All right. The last senator we're going to talk about is not because she ate fried chicken with a fork and knife, or because she has a reputation as a difficult boss, or because she claims Native American ancestry. It's Kirsten Gillibrand. And she had this to say, it was sort of not really widely noticed. It was on the podcast Pod Save America, I believe last week. If you're not able to get 60 votes on something, it just means you haven't worked hard enough talking to enough people and trying to listen to their concerns and then coming up with a solution that they can support. So uh, I'm not afraid of it one way or the other. Uh, but you'd be, op- you'd be open to getting rid of it for something big like Medicare for I all. don't think we should have gotten rid of it for the Supreme Court justices because they're lifetime appointments. And I do think you should be able to earn at least 60 votes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll think about it. I, I, you know, I, I, can, I believe I can work well under either system mm-hmm. because if you don't have 60 votes yet, it just means you haven't done enough advocacy and you need to work a lot harder. It in that equation is the filibuster, which is the requirement that you get 60 votes in order to begin debate and then end debate for major legislative items. Are you seething mad or just like (laughs) Adam, I believe, is not the biggest fan of the filibuster. But why don't you articulate your own opinion on this? The requirement that you get 60 votes is something that McConnell has weaponized essentially to nullify the legislative branch. And Senator Gillibrand in saying that, you know, if you don't have 60, you haven't done enough advocacy presupposes that McConnell and the Senate Republicans are operating in good faith and that they will ever give you the votes you need to get 60. And I think that one of the problems here is a cold, hard math problem for Democrats when it comes to elections. Right. The 2020 cycle and 2022 are a lot better for us in terms of the Senate map than 2018 was, but they're not great. The upside potential is still relatively limited. And I think even in the most wildly optimistic scenarios, you're looking at a majority in the Senate somewhere in the low to mid 50s, like 53. It's amazing to think that it wasn't all that long ago that there were 60 Democratic senators. That's right. A rare window to do whatever the hell you guys wanted, although there was like... Well, there's upside and downside, right? That's exactly right. Because, you know, yeah, there were 60, but you had names like Lieberman, Baucus, Conrad. Bye. Bye. Blanche Lincoln. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I could go on. But like, you know, and so now you've got a smaller group, but it's more liberal and cohesive. I think what it comes down to is that if Democrats have an amazing election night in 2020, we win the presidency, we take back the Senate and we keep the House, you're going to be looking at seven plus Republican votes that you need to pass anything. Yeah. So President Gillibrand or whoever is going to advance a policy, whatever her number one priority is. Republicans are not going to give them the votes they need to get to 60, and they're going to have to make a decision. And they're going to have to decide whether they want to either dramatically curtail their policy goals in order to get to 60, or go nuclear and pass what they want and move on. And what would you suggest they do? I do not think that the 60-vote threshold should prevent us from achieving the policy goals that we know this country needs. I mean, the planet is melting, income inequality is out of control. There are massive problems facing us. I personally believe that like the healthy balance of our country is when liberals come in, pass big, expensive government programs that help <laughs> that- working people and lift and raise the quality of life. And then 
conservatives can come in and trim back the fat. And the problem right now is that we're not giving them anything to trim back. Right. So what's we funny, need to, we need to uphold uh, our role What's here. funny is that Trump at various points in his tenure has been tweeting about, just get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> and like, I, I don't think he quite understands that the filibuster did not prevent um, Obamacare appeal from passing. Right. They could have done it with a few votes. But, well, and, that, and that's, can I just make a point there? Because sure. like, you know, liberals say like, oh, but if we get rid of the filibuster, Republicans use it to pass all these bad things. And absolutely Republicans will use it. It's fundamentally a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Will they pass more bad stuff than we will pass good stuff. But you look at the last year and Republicans had the opportunity to pass things with 51 votes by using reconciliation like they did for Obamacare. Right. And I think it tells you a lot that they couldn't even get 51 votes. Yeah, but we're talking about things like, for instance, concealed carry reciprocity, right? That is a policy that would pass without the filibuster. It just would. And that would allow basically anyone to use their concealed carry permit in states that don't allow it. So you have massive expansion of gun accessibility in this country. If you're willing to live with that, that's fine. But the stakes should be clear. So does Trump understand any of this? And if not, why not? He only understands it through the prism of like, oh, what will meet my immediate political desires or instinctive policy desires at this very minute or cable news cycle or whatever. He's not thinking <laughs> about a long game that someone like, say, <laughs> Leader McConnell sure. might be thinking of. But one thing that really I don't even know if impressed is the right <laughs> word here. Um me about that Senator Gillibrand clip from Pot Save America is how anyone who's been alive since 2009 taking the position that politically you're just going to own the Republicans into submission with logic. <laughs> you're going to win the policy argument and you're going to make this big West Wing style speech that yeah. just brings everybody over to your side and suddenly Merrick Garland will be on the bench. No one's done it yet and maybe that's because the major ones are all senators so far but someone is going to run on a platform of abolishing the filibuster and I think it will be sort of a niche issue for the campaign, but I think it will have some resonance. I think that's right. I mean, there's no massive constituency out there for protecting the traditions of the of the Senate. Uh, <laughs> oh, not my norms. Oh, oh but listen, God, I want to go back to concealed carry reciprocity for one second. Oh I my to let you get God. Away with this, which okay. is that, like the assumption that that would definitely pass. They could have put that in the reconciliation package that passed. It might have been, not to they get too into the parliamentarian. May have been like, this is not germane to budget. Yeah, but they've been able out. to make a lot of things fit in that. For instance, Anwar repealing and right, opening up right, the right. drilling. So I'm just saying, it is not right to assume that things are automatically going to pass. This is part of the point, is that even getting 51 votes for something is hard. No, I get it. I think there are some Democratic constituencies that are worried about it because their priorities will be endangered. I think women's rights and abortion rights groups are fairly nervous about this for good reason. But I think on the whole, you have to look at the balance and you probably make uh, the accurate assessment, which is you can get a lot more liberalism than you get conservatism this way. Okay, we're going to wrap up, but we have to wrap up with... um, one of my favorite clips of the weekend, and you're a communications specialist, so I just want you to sort of assess the beauty of this answer from Governor Ralph Northam, who is under fire for a yearbook photo, a medical school yearbook photo that showed him in blackface. He went on Face the Nation to sort of talk about it for the first time, and this was his logic for why he should stay in office. How do you think you still deserve this job when so many people are calling for you to step down? Well, again, we, we have worked very hard. Uh, we've had a good first year, and, and I'm a leader. Uh, I've been in some very difficult situations, life and death situations, taking care of sick children. And right because now, you're a doctor, yes. right now, Virginia needs someone that can heal. Uh, there's no better person to do that than a doctor. That's beautiful. That's <laughs> That's amazing. That's a good case for like why a rabbi should be the governor now. The rabbi can help you heal. You know, you could. But basically... should it be the same doctor that yeah, injured the patient? The in the first... <laughs> I mean, it's like I robbed the bank, therefore I know the bank's vulnerabilities <laughs> and I can fix it. No, this is crazy. This Virginia story yes. is totally nuts. It's insane. 
How well, does it end? I have no idea. <laughs> well, we at the Daily Beast do employ someone who used to be a world-famous hacker as one of our oh, reporters. Oh, yeah, no, it's true. Who does great reporting on hacking. So I'm not sure you should poo-poo your I'm own not poo-poo. Yeah, yeah, that's idea. good. That's a good point. But, uh, but the thing with Northam is, look, instead of him and apparently everybody else in Virginia politics <laughs> resigning en masse, how about they just all gather to do remarkably extreme radical measures to ameliorate poverty among black youth in Virginia, make it so that you can vote even if you're behind bars as a felon, but only if you're black. And (laughs) um, Ralph Northam changes his last name to X and renames the state capital for W.E.B. Dubois. And then he resigns. And well, then everybody resigns en masse. And I think that would be much healthier for Virginia politics and policy than simply just doing a knee-jerk resign because of- He says he's going it. on some sort of racial reconciliation. Yeah, yeah I but, mean, but that's, that oh. sounds very rhetorical. Like, he needs I, to map out what on, his policy would be for based black on his people. his other answer about, you know, indentured servants arriving on the shores of Virginia in 1619, I think he's still working his way yeah, through well, roots I, and I, hasn't I, quite I, gotten to the autobiography <laughs> of Malcolm X. So that, changing his name to X might be- He's got to uh, do some crash course reading <laughs> before he fixes his political situation. Right, he, but it's such a mess because we're in this place where like none of these three guys can resign without the other one going first. And so, and also we're in a real like situation where the black lieutenant governor who is in some serious, uh, who's facing serious accusations of rape may be the one who gets pushed out while the two other guys who wore blackface are the ones who stay in. It's but like let's a be clear, rape is worse. Yeah, rape is worse. <laughs> I but mean, these are allegations. Oh, of course, of but course. But, still, but it's just, just like the image of this all is just a disaster, not to mention the actual merits of the charges they're facing, which is right. shameful. It's just crazy. Anyways, on that note, we conclude another episode of Omnishambles, <laughs> which is an appropriately Note named podcast for this week and most weeks on that. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. You can get Omnishambles on Google Play, iTunes, of course, thedailybeast.com. And as always, a reminder, please share this with your friends. Rate it high, high, multi-stars, five stars. If they have six, give it a six star. And tune in next week when we will have another lesser guest. Adam, thank you very much. And Sven, thanks too. <laughs>